Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my co-host, the friendly neighborhood jeweler, Alan Ben-Joseph, calling in all the way from Amsterdam. Today, we are joined again, so soon, in fact, by our good friend, Nicholas from Fears, and he has become something of a superstar in the Real Time Show network on our WhatsApp community chat group. Nicholas, welcome to the airwaves for your first full-length episode. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you very much for having me back. I'm, I'm I'm quite surprised. I thought after the first time you'd have been like absolute blacklisted, never coming back. So it's an honor. <laughs> now we let you off. You know, all the controversial things you said on the last episode, they, they're just good for ratings. What can I say? You know, it's, it's your reputation, not mine. Alon has not met you before on air, but today we get to introduce two men who are heading up family businesses. So a, a lovely bit of symmetry there. Alon, do you want to chime in? Definitely, Nicholas. Welcome. I'm actually very excited. I did not join the previous episodes. I have no idea what you gentlemen discussed. But for our dear listeners, Nicholas Bowman Scargill, his reputation precedes him, a true English gentleman, leading a family business, Fears Watch Company, F-E-A-R-S, and you can find them online on fearswatches.com. I've been admiring you and your team from afar for quite some time. I believe your rectangular watch is one of the best ones out there, the Archival 1930. And I'm very honored to have you on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And it's always nice in this industry when you talk to people, not only who work for a business that's been going for many decades, but a family run business like that is it's that thing where you suddenly feel like this bond of like, yeah, we both know what it's like running a business with our, our you know, our family's legacy behind it. We were just chatting off air momentarily about that importance of maintaining the legacy that you are, as you dubbed yourself, the custodian of. How is that? Could you give our listeners just a little bit of an idea of what it's like to shoulder that? I don't know if it's a burden, but at least that conscious um responsibility for the past and the future all at once what's that like well it's interesting because i think this is where alan and my stories might differ so i'm very very and i always see it as being incredibly lucky to have the fears story behind us so fears was founded for anyone who doesn't know back in 1846 in the city of bristol in the west of england by a young watchmaker called edwin fear and it ran through until the 1970s, till 1976, when after three generations of being run by the Fear family, it sadly closed. I then bring it back to life in 2016. And my link to it is being Edwin Fear's great, great, great grandson. So my story is very much linked with, with the past. You know, Fear's in its first um, incarnation from, from 1846 to 1976, those 130 years. And you know, you look at that and you just go, you couldn't ask for a better heritage or a better story. You know, when you're able to be at an event and you say, oh, how old is Fears? And you say, well, look, Fears was founded when Queen Victoria was still in her 20s. You know, that sort of thing is quite mind blowing. Um, but I do benefit also from the fact that the business had closed and it had been closed for 39 years before I brought it back to life. And the reason I say that's a benefit, because a lot of people say, oh, don't you wish the company had kept going? Well, if it had kept going, we all know what, you know, the 70s and 80s were like for the watch industry. They weren't exactly great. And especially for British business in that time, like, 
by the time I would have been, you know, of the right age and, and, you know, maturity to, to consider even working in the company, there probably wouldn't have been much company left. And there would have been a full, you know, legacy of, you know, oh, well, this is how it's always been done. And, you know, whereas when I came along in 2014 and said, right, I'm going to restart the business. And it took two years to do that. 2016, you know, I'm able to come at it fresh and go, well, what is the best business practice to do today? How is, you know, if you're setting up a new company, how should we do it? I was able to do it very light, you know, with basically £30,000 of my husband and my money. You know, we didn't have to take on a, a business that had, you know, all, you know, old premises and, you know, a massive team of people and old ways of working. We were able to kind of benefit from being quite fresh. So, it's very weird because it isn't, I would never say it was a burden, but it could so easily have been a burden. I really have completely lucked out at having almost the best of both worlds. Um, but it is something where it would be so tempting to go, right, the company is now going again. I'm managing director. I own the business, you know, wonderful. But we were talking just before we started recording about the fact that I actually live up in York. I live in North Yorkshire, but the company head office where I'm speaking from now is down in Bristol. And that means every week I split my life between York and Bristol. You know, in York is where my husband is. He he works at the university there as a as a, a professor in mathematics. And yet I'm getting on a train and saying goodbye to him for the week. And a lot of people say, well why why bother doing that? Like the company's international. We sell all over the world. Like it doesn't really matter where we're based. And I say, yeah, but it does. Because you can't benefit from the history of the business and then not pay respect to it by actually being back in the city and growing the business in the city where it once was before. I don't know if that makes sense, but like for me, that's a very, like you can't take without giving back. Like my, my mother um, is a priest actually in the Church of England. And even though I'm not a practicing Christian today, I was always kind of brought up with this kind of notion of like, you know, the Lord giveth with one hand and taketh with the other, you know. And it is that thing of if you've been given this huge like benefit and start, you have to pay a lot of respect to it, even if it's inconvenient. That value set is extremely laudable, but not all that common. I mean, you have been lucky in a sense that you had the opportunity to pick up the family story and continue it anew without being weighed down by bad practices or a an extreme mountain of terrible watches that might have been produced throughout those dark years for the watchmaking industry. But there are plenty of people that have done that. They've taken old names and they've restarted the company and they've, they've cherry-picked what they want from the past and they've tried to push the story in whatever direction they see fit without the same level of diligence, I suppose, is the word I would, I would use. And I think it's wonderful because Having that personal connection is obviously a, a very useful anchor because you never forget it because it is part of you and part of your story and part of your legacy that you're writing now. But it also gives you that very personal spur to make sure that you don't take that story off on some wild goose chase, you know, following some trends or trying to capitalize on market conditions in the moment. You always have that long-term perspective. And I think that you've been very patient in building out the collection and as alan said we have this beautiful fears archival 1930 rectangular watch and then the brunswick collection which i think is what people probably 
know you for best, but you also have in your collection that I was browsing slash lusting over while I was off air, this wonderful collaboration piece with Garrick. Now, could you explain that partnership to us? How did it come about? And what is that watch in the collection for? It's it's really interesting about the Fears Garrick because when people see it, they, they see this incredible piece of British watchmaking. You know, the, the movement is the Garrick's own movement um, and the finishing of, of, of that is all done in, in the UK. The case is made in the UK. You know, it is a coming together of two companies. For me, that watch symbolizes friendship. So the owner of Garrick, Dave Brailsford, is been one of my closest friends and mentors uh, in the industry for the past coming on seven years. I first, I knew of Garrick for, for many, many years, but when I was about two weeks away from the relaunch of Fears back in November, October, November 2016, I was at, I went to an event and, and Garrick were there and I got chatting away and and I mentioned to uh, to Dave Brailsford, the first time I met him, like who I was. And he was like, oh, I've heard of you. And like, oh, what are, you, what are your plans? What are you doing? Now, I had approached so many British watch companies in that summer between leaving my job at Rolex, where I was an apprentice watchmaker, and officially re- relaunching Fears. And in that summer, I'd approached loads of different brands, and no one wanted to talk to me. And I was like, hey, look, I'll buy you a pint. I've got some questions. I'd love some advice. Like, you don't have to reveal anything to me, but like, I'd love some advice. No one would speak to me. Dave was completely different. He immediately was like, well, look, here's my phone number. Any questions, just ask. And I mean it. Any questions, just ask. And within the, you know, a week, I, I had like a flurry of questions. I messaged him and he like just came straight back with answers and help and advice and then followed up going like, you know, how did it go? Did you, you know, did you find a supply for that? And da, da, da. And, and then at the launch event, we were both there. We both had stands there uh, at the, the old Salon QP watch show in, uh, in the Saatchi Gallery in Chelsea. May it rest in peace. And he brought media over and he brought collectors over and he made introductions. And you're just going, you don't have to do this, but I'm incredibly grateful you did. And that continued to grow. So then he, you know, we, we, we sat down over the first year of running fears over many, many cups of tea up in London, getting to know each other better, speaking weekly on the phone. And he was hugely instrumental in helping me bring my dream of the first Brunswick, the first mechanical fears in 40 years to life. You know, he helped put me in contact with workshops and manufacturers to actually, as a tiny company, be able to develop a prototype and bring it to market in we I, I worked it out the other day. We did it in four months from hand sketches to working prototype. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Um, and then our friendship's just grown from there. And it's been very nice that over the years, I've then been able to slowly repay some of that help and support with things like the Watchmakers Club that Dave founded, which is uh, a grouping of independent watch brands that do different events. And before I was at Rolex, I used to work in public relations. So event planning is something I've, I've, I'm not an expert at, but I've, I've done before. And so Dave was saying, well, look, could you help? You know, you're very good at this sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, of course. So it's been really nice to, in small ways, help him out as well as him helping me. And so when it came to the Garrick, for, for the three and a half years this project was uh, in development for, we called it Project Costa. And the reason it was called Project Costa 
is because we shook hands and agreed to do it over a pot of tea in Costa Coffee in the UK. So for anyone outside the UK, Costa Coffee is like, it's like, it's like our Starbucks, you know, it's the high street coffee chain everywhere. And so we were in Costa and, you know, and, and he said, look, I think it'd be really cool to do this, like, you know, using our movement, but with your design skill and blah, 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 and bring our two brands together. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, why on earth would he ever want to partner with a tiny little company? I mean, this just been going for two years at this point. Um, and of course, when you're running the business, it's quite difficult to realize that there may be a future because you're just worrying about paying the bills today and, you know, what's coming around the corner tomorrow. Um, whereas for Dave, he was like, yeah, I, I see that you're going places and I, I want to, you know, I, I think this would be really great for us to partner. So when you fast forward right through to the launch of the watch, we actually did a photo shoot um, just before the launch. And I just got the keys for our new head office in Bristol. And Dave drove over and we did a photo shoot. And literally, if you if you look in the background, like nothing is decorated. The floor is like, you know, a complete state. And there we both are. And we actually, of course, we, we had to do a photo holding Costa coffee cups. Um, but, you know, there we are photographed together. And it's so nice because Dave and I both have a copy of, of the, a, a particular photo taken on that day, which we have in our respective offices. And I think what I love is when you look at it, you can see the friendship. You know, at that point, we'd been friends for like six or so years. And you're just like, yeah, this is really nice because we now have this wonderful watch that, you know, people absolutely love. And, you know, we only build six to eight of them a year. So it's a very low production watch, but it's not limited. But whenever I see that watch, all I see is, you know, my friendship and my respect for, you know, one of my best friends. And I, I don't think it gets better than that. And I think watches can do that. I think watches is one of those weird industries that you can build very, very close friendships with people uh, as a result of our, our love of creating these beautiful, beautiful devices that no one technically needs, but people certainly want. Gentlemen, I'm very serious. Who's sending an invoice to Costa for this sponsored? Uh... <laughs> Nicholas, thank you so much. It's an amazing story. And Rob, you you said that you talked enough with Nicholas, and then you you stole my mic. So it's my turn now. Rob, go drink your cup of tea and be quiet. Yes, boss. Nicholas. So the company, the family company, exists over 175 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, so this year is the 177th anniversary of the founding of the company. Amazing. Congratulations. So walk us quickly through the, 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 the family and company history, why it was benched, parked or frozen for 39 years, and what happened to you from going from Ralph Lauren into PR and then suddenly becoming an apprentice watchmaker and then setting up your company i certainly feel like someone's read my linkedin <laughs> i forgot it. working at ralph lauren feels like a lifetime ago but yes i was yeah i was at ralph lauren for for two years um okay right well let's uh let's start at the beginning then so back in in 1846 um so a year after langer was founded a year before cartier was founded so that gives you an idea of just how old Fears is. It's sandwiched between Langer and Cartier, same age as Ulysses Nardin, and also the same age as the Peroni Beer Company. So next time you're drinking a Peroni, 
look at the uh, the Dahl 1846. It's the same year as Fears. Fears was founded by this young 22-year-old watchmaker called Edwin. Edwin had done an apprentice when growing up um, to become a, a clock and watchmaker. He then, uh, with a, a small loan from his parents, was able to set up his first premises on Redcliffe Street in Bristol. And we don't have any, we obviously don't have any photography of it, but we do have a wonderful etching, like an engraving on a very early business card showing the premises. Number 33 to 35 Redcliffe Street. So showroom on the ground floor and workshop above. And Edwin and his family lived above that as well. So very much, you know, living above the shop. Now, the business appeared to prosper quite rapidly. And by 1866, had moved to the end of the road where there is a big corner where Redcliffe Street joins Bristol Bridge. And on this corner for the next, I think it was the next 50, 60 years, Fears would continuously buy up more and more premises until it eventually had the entire corner. And locally, the corner was known as Fears Corner. So there are, in people's like diaries, it said, oh, I went and met Margaret for a cup of tea and we met at Fears Corner and then we went to Lion's Tea Rooms. You know, it's really incredible to realize that this area, like this, 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 this site became so dominant in part of Bristol's, uh, Bristol's own heritage. Anyway, the, the business ran um, and moved there in 1866. Um, now, Edwin was not a particularly well man. He was a bit of a hypochondriac. Uh, we actually have some extracts from his handwritten diary. And I don't think you've ever met a more pessimistic man. Like the, the, this chap was, he did not have that sort of entrepreneurial optimism. He was, he was a very, very God-fearing man, um, very strict, very Victorian, very much of that sort of, you know, early mid-Victorian period. And he died uh, before he, he reached 50. And it was quite interesting when he died because his son wasn't, well, his eldest son, who naturally would have taken over, had actually broken away from the family to set up his own competing watch company in Bristol and then moved it um, down the railway line to Reading. But that meant that when Edwin died, he wasn't in a position to take over. So it naturally would have fallen to the next eldest son, Amos Daniel Fear. But Amos Daniel Fear wasn't old enough yet. So his mother, Charlotte Fear, Edwin's wife, basically took over and ran the business for three years until Amos Daniel reached the age of 21, which back in the Victorian time, that's how old you had to be to run a company. And so it's this fascinating period to think like, yeah, actually for three years, Fears had this, uh, this sort of interim CEO, which was uh, this very formidable lady, Charlotte Fear. So Amos Daniel, 21, takes over the business. Um, this is in 1877. And to celebrate, the company has a day's holiday and everyone goes off to Western Supermare, which is the coast quite close to uh, Bristol. Everyone goes off to the seaside. And there's this lovely photograph of Amos Daniel Fear and the whole company, the directors, everyone on the beach, having a good time, all dressed with their top hats and tailed coats and ties and very, very formal, very Victorian. But it's charming. And it's that lovely thing where you look at it and go, you know, it just you, you're capturing a moment. Then the next generation has taken over. And 
the second generation, Amos Daniel Fear, the second managing director. My goodness, what a man. He very quickly started growing Fears. So Fears started acquiring more premises in Bristol. It also um, had satellite offices in both Manchester and Birmingham. He became the president of the Watch Association, the West Country Watch Association. So uh, he was very much the prominent um, businessman, not only in Bristol, but in the area for watches. Uh, he went to America. Uh, he was actually in America um, just a few years after when Patek went over to America to explore it as a, a possible market to grow into. I mean, you're reading about what he did and you're thinking, it's one thing me jumping on a plane and going to America. And I've been to the US five times this year. But that means turning up at an airport, getting in a pressurized plane, and six hours later, stepping off, having had a couple of gin and tonics, right? You know, it's it's hardly a, a difficult thing to do. Whereas back then, that meant, you know, sailing across the seas and then, you know, horsebacks and, oh, it's crazy. Anyway, by the 1920s, Fears had grown to be quite a large business. They had 100 watchmakers in Bristol. They were exporting to 90. The old advert said 95 foreign and colonial countries. So very much of its time and its period. Um, but it was incredible. Fears was doing so much business that in their export warehouse, which was located on Brunswick Square. So you may begin to see a theme in our naming of watches after the old locations, the Redcliffe line, the Brunswick line. Um, they used to do so much exporting that they had a branch of the post office located in their premises just to handle the fears parcels, which I just find incredible. That is absolutely the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I know. It's like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here in Bristol right now and I'm imagining that DHL have a service point like downstairs in our stockroom. You know, it's that sort of thing where you go, that would be incredible. Like you're doing that much business that watches are going to every, you know, every corner of the, of the world. Um, and the business was doing very well, but you know, he was, he was an elderly man. And so in the late twenties, he retired. Um, there's this wonderful photo. He, his wife had passed away sadly. So he remarried and there's this wonderful photo from 1928 of his wedding day. And he's stepping out of the church with his new wife and he's in, you know, and he's holding his top hat off to the side and he's got this big white mustache and he looks like Mr. Monopoly, like you look at it and I've, I've got a framed photograph of, of, of that photo in my office because it's just so inspiring. This is a man on top of his world. Everything is, you know, they survived the First World War. They survived the Spanish flu. You know, they, they, they've grown the business to be a huge organization and like, wow, very impressive. And of course, anyone who knows history knows that we are literally less than 24 months away from the Wall Street crash. Everything is about to change. And the Great Depression, which took a few years before it hit England. So when his son, Amos Reginald Fear, the third managing director, took over, he like, you know, he he inherited this incredibly strong company. And it all was about to change. And it happened very, very quickly. And, you know, by the mid-30s, Fears was teetering in and out of bankruptcy. Like it was in a very poor, rough state. And, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the, hit, you know, you know, the history of your family's business, these are the bits you're meant to cover up, right? You're meant to say, oh, everything was fine. The business succeeded and it was all perfect. 
But for me, these are the most important things because these were actually the parts of the story, parts of the history that I, I kind of gripped onto during the early days of the pandemic. You know, when you suddenly realize that the world you know and love is turning upside down at an unprecedented rate. But, you know, you, when you realized in, in March, April 2020, when our sales went to zero and I, you know, well, I'll come on to that part of the story in a bit. But, you know, at that moment, you literally are thinking, well, hang on, fears got through the First World War. And just imagine what the third managing director was thinking when, you know, the sales started falling off a cliff in the early 1930s, employment's rising, you know, the, the, the world they knew was changing rapidly. And, you know, fears sort of limped through the 30s. And by the end of the 30s, it was doing pretty well, actually. It, it really, he had turned the business around. They had a brand new, very large storefront on Fears Corner. And they very proudly referred to it as a London-style window, which basically meant a massive plate glass window, you know, in keeping with the latest styles from London. It's also wonderfully sort of, you know, old-fashioned in the way they talk about these things. But anyway, everything is going really well. And then September 1939 happens and Britain finds itself plunged into war for the second time in living memory for most of the 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 colleagues at Fears and it was a difficult time like a really difficult time even though Fears was watchmaker to the Admiralty um it really was a tough time for for the company all of their premises received direct hits during the Bristol Blitz from the Luftwaffe. And, you know, it's just, there's actually film footage showing the bombed out burning wreckage of Bristol Corner, uh, sorry, Fears Corner on Bristol Bridge. And it's just, you see this like six, seven story building just completely gutted. And it actually, when they knocked it down, they didn't rebuild on that site until the 1980s. So after Fears had gone. And the Brunswick Square premises took free hits on different nights. And eventually they decided they couldn't work from there because there's literally holes in the roof. So they had to pull out of the building. Um, and in fact, I have at home a coffee table, which has these beautiful uh, Bristol Delft tiles. Um, so Delft style tiles, but these ones were made in Bristol. But the crazy thing is, on the underside of the coffee table, the third managing director has written like, you know, this coffee table was made in 1966, you know, for Christmas 1966, uh, using tiles which were hand salvaged from the wreckage of Brunswick Square, Bristol after a night of bombing. And it's incredible when I use that table when I'm back home. You're thinking these, these were literally in, I guess, around the fireplace and maybe the, you know, in the boardroom or something like that. Um, but yeah, Fears was very severely damaged during the war. However, for anyone who's been keeping up with, uh, with, with the years, they'll realize that the year after the war, 1946, was actually Fears' centenary. So Fears suddenly gets into this new swing, this new era. In 1946, they moved the business up to Clifton which is um, a very affluent suburb, sort of in the northern part of Bristol. So it's not city centre. Um, they move into a massive townhouse that the family owned and basically converted it into offices, workshops, everything in one building. 
and they rebuild from there. And by the 50s, they were doing very well. Um, by the 60s, they, they really were doing well. However, and this is where the story takes a turn, the fourth generation, who naturally would have been the successors, they, he had been to war, right? You know, he had fought and, and did very, you know, he, he was comm- commended for um, his fighting in the Royal Navy. Well, after you've been to war, do you want to come home and work in your family's stuffy watch company? Like nowadays, when I'm at a dinner party and people say, what do you do? And I say, oh, I run a watch company. It's, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Whereas back then in the 40s, 50s, 60s, people did interesting jobs, but they didn't realize they were interesting jobs, right? Like what people wanted and what he ended up doing, he became a, a career man. He got a dream job for him, which was working at Imperial Tobacco based in Bristol. You know, he wanted to be that salaried employee. And it's just fascinating because nowadays you go, what would you rather do? Work for, you know, a big corporation in a cubicle or run your family business? I think most people would be really excited about giving it a go and running the family business. But no, no, back then it was a very different thing. People wanted and craved that more corporate life, especially after the hostilities of war and, and the 1950s. Anyway, the business sort of limped on. Uh, the third managing director retired. Um, another company actually then managed fears for a bit. And then by the 70s, it was all over. It was just the market was flooded with imports of not necessarily quartz watches, but certainly Swiss watches came in. Um, if you think back in the 19th century, people bought watches from their local watchmaker. That changed. You know, Companies had to be big and international or they died and sadly fears died and that was the end of the story the family burnt all the paperwork everything was dismantled the remaining people were let go story ends before we continue to the the the, the phoenix rising out of the ashes because you literally said burnt what position did fears have in the landscape of british watchmakers I mean, in volume of watches, how many did they produce in, in the peak time? And, and what price point? Because today, Fears is, I would call it a luxury product, high-end, because the price points are between 4000 going up to 2025 about, euro, sterling, or dollars. So do you have insights into that data, Nicholas? Certainly. I mean, we realized that you know, in the 1920s, Fears was, which I would say was when it was probably at its peak, um, Fears was the largest watchmaker in the west of England. So they were, you know, probably the largest absolute watchmaker in the UK was Smith's up in Sheffield. Um, and Smith's was founded five years after Fears and actually closed five years before Fears. So Fears actually outlived them, but Fears wasn't wasn't as big as Smith's. Um, but in terms of quantity of watches, you know, I wouldn't have said they were up to the hundreds of thousands per year, but certainly in the 20s, they would have made several hundred thousand watches across the decade. So they weren't, they weren't a, you know, a particularly, you know, ultra niche watch company making, you know, 10 watches a year, but they also weren't a, you know, a mass market making, you know, just churning watches out. 
they very much position themselves, and this is when, when you know, as we'll, we'll talk about the sort of the refounding of fears and its, its rebirth. But when you look at what fears used to make, it was always very elegant, classic, everyday watches, but very solid watches. Lots of them were waterproof, strong guarantees. You know, very early uh, users of shock resisting, and that very much sums up what the fears watch was. This was your watch for life. It wasn't a dressy precious metal watch. It wasn't ultra slim. It wasn't high complication. But it also wasn't a tool watch. You know, it wasn't a sports watch. Um, well, that didn't really come until the 70s. Um, but it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't, you know, they did divers and chronographs, but they weren't the mainstay. So when you look at what fears did in the past, it's very similar to what we do today. The price point is changed. Um, if you do a direct, inflation adjusted uh adjustment fears most of the fears watches today would be around about the thousand pound mark um but in terms of the core of what they used to do and where they were positioned i would say that's probably very close to what fears does today at our at our entry level point so yeah that's uh it's very interesting to see that because that that was also one of the concerns I had when I restarted the business was going, you know, we could just take it really up market. Look, we've got this lovely old date, eighteen forty six. We can slap that on the watch, and you know, let's let's go to the moon. But I was like, actually, I kind of want to keep it close to what fears used to do. That feels more true, and it's also an area that I always feel is quite underserved. You know, that classic watch. Talking of classic watches. And the extremely long history of Fears. How common is it to find genuine vintage Fears on the secondary market? I mean, I looked for them in the past and I can't find many examples of them at all. Do you have a collection of old watches yourself in a museum on site, perhaps? Well, it's quite interesting you say that because when I restarted it, lots of people assumed, uh, oh, you must have like a, you know, a huge archive from the family. But no, everything was destroyed at the end of the 70s. So there, there wasn't this massive archive of watches. So it was a, a couple of years out from the relaunch that I started like looking for watches on eBay and, and auction places. And I started acquiring a small collection of Fears. Now, back then, a good quality running Fears watch, wristwatch, probably would have set you back between 10 and 25 pounds on eBay. This is back in like 2014, 15, early 16. Um, in fact, we have in the archive today a pocket watch that was actually made by Edwin himself. The movement is signed by him. And this was made in 1868. And our heritage division within the company has actually restored it to working order. And I bought that. It was starting bid a pound. And I think I paid like 50, 60 quid for this sil silver pocket watch made by my great, great, great grandfather. Um, that was then. Things are somewhat different now. Like watches do come up. However, there are a lot of people who have uh, alerts set on eBay. And I mean, I saw not that long ago a non-working fears with a broken crystal, no hands. The movement wasn't working. Dial was heavily patinaed. The case was in poor condition. And it sold for £450, which is just ridiculous because you're going hang on a moment, that same watch would have sold for a pound, you know, seven years ago. Um, 
But I think part of that is actually linked to the fact that we established our Fears Heritage Division in 2019. And, you know, what we do is we basically offer servicing, you know, restoration service for any Fears Watch made between 1846 and 1976. And of course, don't forget, there's something really special for us. We get those watches, they come in, they go through the workshop, but we get to see and explore and learn about watches that we never knew Fears made. So I remember the most incredible discovery was this watch from a lady uh, somewhere in, in Europe. And I think it had been her grandfather's watch. And it came in and it was a 1960s gold watch. Absolutely stunning. Very, very, very elegant, very clean. But the thing that made it really special was the seconds hand was a clear perspex disc with a little blue aeroplane motif on it. And so when the watch is running, this little aeroplane just works its way around the dial. And we would never have known of that watch existing if it wasn't for having a heritage division where we're looking after the, the, these old pieces and bringing them back to life. On topic of that aeroplane on a Fears watch, I've always been obsessed with the Dirty Dozen watches produced upon request of the RAF during World War. Only one of them was British. You said that Fears produced watches for the naval services yes yeah for the admiralty yes yeah but why haven't fears made pilots watches i don't know i i I, that's an area i don't know i know why we don't make um any sort of military style watches today um and that's actually linked in a small way to vertex so vertex was restarted six months after fears was restarted by the great grandson of the founder and the owner and and founder of, of vertex today is a very lovely chap called Don Cotron, who is one of my closest friends. We got introduced at an event and we both, of course, knew each other. And we're both like, hang on, we're not meant to get on with each other. We shouldn't even be talking because we've both restarted our own families, British watch companies. Like, you know, it's not one, it's one thing being a competitor. It's another thing when you're like, we have almost the same history. Like this is, you closed in the seventies, we closed in the seventies. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. But of course, as these things go, because we have so much in common, we very quickly hit it off. And ever since then, back in 2017, every month we we go out for lunch together because it's one of those things when you have that shared history, that shared legacy, that shared drive to recreate your family's business, you actually have more in common than you are competitors. Now, Don and, and Vertex, you know, a massive part of their their history is their involvement as being one of the dirty dozen. And that's incredible, like really incredible. And so they very much have worked on that and pieces that they prototypes they were going to make for for the military, for the RAF and and, and that area. And, you know, yes, Fears was watchmaker to the Admiralty, but I'll be perfectly honest, sort of as a deference to Don, I'm like, actually, they they do that area really well. It's not an area that I feel we need to do. We we've got our thing, they've got their thing, and the two sit very comfortably together without treading on each other's toes too much. I think you do a good job of satisfying these two different very sides of British watchmaking and its history for sure. I'm just curious as to whether you know if Fears was asked at the time to produce a dirty dozen watch or whether there was some reason why they distance themselves from the project because you would think around that time in the late 30s 
And okay, I think the Dirty Dozen watches were actually commissioned towards the very end of the war because I believe that not all of them were delivered in the end. So I think they weren't commissioned until the mid-40s. And perhaps that had something to do with it. Perhaps Fears had been so badly decimated by the uh, air raids on Bristol that there wasn't the capacity left to produce those watches. But do you know if they were asked, if your ancestors were even you know, notified about the, the project? I don't, I'm afraid. I think this is... There are so many questions unanswered because this big bonfire at the end of the 70s, right? You know, so much information was was literally destroyed because who would hold on to that? Who would have thought to keep hold of it? Now, interestingly, back in 2021, we there was a book published by Bristol Books called Elegantly Understated, 175 Years of the Fears Watch Company. And the author of this book, and this book was published to celebrate, obviously, the, the, the big anniversary. Um, we were very honored that Roger Smith wrote the foreword for, for the book. And it's, it's a beautiful book. It's, you, you can Shameless plug, you can buy it on our website for £60. Uh, lots of beautiful photography from the archive, old imagery, old documents. But it's a very in-depth look at the story. Like I've I've given like the executive summary of Fears' history. This is a beautifully written book. Now the author, she did over a year's worth of research and interviews, and you know, putting notes in the local paper saying, "Did did you or anyone you know used to work for Fears? Have you got any stories?" And she was interviewing people every single week. People who used to, we. She even found the final watchmaker who worked with Fears right up until the day closed. And he donated to the archive the very final Fears catalogue from 1975. And little things like the catalogue says number 436. So it was the 436th edition of the Fears International Catalogue. Now, Fears, in this rebirth, we'd always done a printed catalogue, but we'd always just named the catalogue after the year, you know, catalogue or brochure 2016, 2017, 2018, etc. But after we, we, received this very kind donation we decided to actually backdate the numbering and so later this year we have international catalog number 442 edition 442 being published and it's just a very subtle nod backwards but the information she discovered about the company was phenomenal i mean i didn't just double i probably 10 times my knowledge about my company that she discovered and it's now a standard procedure that anyone who starts fears is gifted a copy of the book to basically like, you know, in your evenings, in your first few weeks working at fears, go home, read the story, learn about the company that you're now working for. And it's fascinating because you're kind of going, this is incredible. Like, yes, I'm, I'm in a, you know, today fears is nine people. So we're, we're, you know, with fraction of the size compared to we were before. Um, but it still means when you walk through the door in the morning, you kind of got that sense of, yeah, actually, this isn't just an office. Like, I'm actually working for, for something different. That is remarkable. What a lovely thing to have. I, I'm going to buy the book now. I can't, I'm, I'm absolutely salivating over the prospect of learning more about the history and hearing those firsthand accounts. Because I was thinking, I mean, it's only 50 or so years since Fears closed its doors. And there must be quite a few people who were alive at that time that had some involvement with it. So it's absolutely wonderful that the author found so many people that could give first-hand testimony of what was going on and fill in some of the blanks from that era following the bonfire, <laughs> as you were 
rather uh, beautifully put it. Okay, we have some questions from our network, from the Real Time Show Network, which any of our listeners can join if they do so desire. They just have to contact us via one of the usual channels, either Instagram or email or via the contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show, and we will add you to the WhatsApp community. There are several channels, and you can choose which ones you'd like to be part of and which ones you don't have any interest in. And we have a question from Eric. And Eric says, do you, as in Nicholas and your company, have any plans for cooperations with other British watchmakers aside from Garrick? Ooh, good question, Eric. Good question. Um, I mean, I could be very coy and say, well, you know, I, I'd be telling if I said anything. Um, I think I think if anyone who follows my personal Instagram at Nicholas Bowman Scargill will see a, a very large insight into behind the scenes of running a watch company. They will also see that I do spend a disproportionate amount of my time, you know, having pints of beer with the owners of other British brands. You know, I, I got back a couple of weeks ago from uh, Wind Up in Chicago. And whenever Fears is at a, a, an international event where there's other British brands, there's a, there's a tradition that we started a few years ago that Fears always basically hosts a night out for the Brits. Brits abroad, let's go out. We often find a pub, you know, get food in, lots of drinks, and just, you know, enjoy the fact that we all set up these, these tiny little companies. But here we are in Chicago or New York or San Francisco um, presenting our watches to the world. And, you know, it's a nice kind of moment to stop and acknowledge that we have achieved something. Um, and then also to have a few too many beers. But if you follow me, you'll see that, you know, I do have very good friendships with different watch brands. And from that friendship does naturally come the opportunity to collaborate. I'm always a strong believer that a collaboration should be, it should be for several reasons. It should be because you go like in the case of, of Dave Brailsford, you know, we're best mates why wouldn't we do something together? Wouldn't that just be really good fun? And you know, to the point of going, maybe no one will buy the watch, but really let's just make it like, you know, this is great. So you don't sit down and do it from a commercial standpoint. It was only actually after we'd launched the first watch, this is awful to admit it, my accountant's going to kill me, but it was only after we launched the first watch that we actually sat down and built a spreadsheet and worked out how much it cost. Because we were just like, no, no, we just want to build the watch. Like, you know, and it may shock you to learn it was, it's by far the least profitable watch I think anyone in Britain has ever made. It's one of those things, don't get me wrong, I love it when, when, when someone orders a Garrick, but it is also a thing of going, well, you know, there's some more money being spent rather than earned. But anyway, but the fact is, yeah, you know, right now we haven't got active plans, but trust me, there are a lot of conversations in the works because a really good collaboration isn't about just sticking names on a dial. It's about going, Actually, if we work with you on this, it pushes us out of our comfort zone. It allows us to experiment. You know, it's the collaboration is, it's that, it, it's basically giving you the confidence to try something new without having to commit to it. And, you know, Fears has a very distinct design language. You know, what we focus on is elegance, understated. It's all about quality of materials, the finishing. It's very subtle. Our watches aren't shouty. But therefore, you look at brands and go, well, hang on, if we were to collaborate with them, we'd get to explore and play in a very different field, but only for 50 pieces. So you don't have to change the entire direction of your company while you still get to explore and, and try something new. I think you've hit the nail on the head there as to some of the most important reasons to collaborate and that ability to experiment 
And I always used to pitch it to brands when I was working for Fratello and designing special editions for the site that they can blame it on us if it goes badly wrong. You know, you can really stretch yourself, maybe even take a brand that operates in an entry-level price point and then push, push, push right up to five figures and maybe even beyond and just see what happens. You know, sometimes I've said it to Lewis of Anordain, I said, if we took an Anodane and we put like a Schwarzer TN movement in it and it was 20K, do you think people would buy it or do you think they'd be turned off? Well, why don't you try it with us? Because if it goes badly wrong, you can blame it on Rob Nuts. And he liked the idea of blaming things on me, but he, he never wanted to do the, uh, the experiment in real life. But I think that's really cool that you're considering it and you're having those conversations and it's going to be great for us to find out what comes next. I always blame Rob as well. So yeah. <laughs> this opportunity to make a uh, the real time show collab with us, right, Rob? That's what you're. That's the point you're trying to drive, aren't you? I wasn't going to bring it up on air, but of course, it's in the back of my mind. So <laughs> I have an idea. We'll talk about that over, over a pint. It's it's a, it's a pint conversation, <laughs> maybe a five pint conversation. <laughs> Listen, Nicholas, as you see, we're very enthusiastic about what you do. You've made a stunning rectangular watch, in my humble opinion, one of the nicest on the market right now. And obviously, in the 30s, it was probably one of the nicest rectangular watches as well. The Brunswick was a watch you already designed in the 20s, the 19th. Is it correct that the Gary Collab was the first round case you've used? No. So when Fears restarted in 2016, our very first family of watches were called the Redcliffs. And that was named after Redcliffe Street. And the Redcliffs um, used a 38 millimeter round case, which shared the exact same silhouette as a lot of the historic Fears watches. So between 1910 and 1940, most Fears watches were shaped watches, you know, rectangles, squares, cushions, um, octagonals. You know, we've got all kinds of octagonals. We were doing octagonals before, uh, you know, Gerald Jenter's parents had even met. Um, you know, it was very much a time when not just fears, but a lot of watch companies were experimenting with new ways and you know, new case shapes. No one had yet settled on it. However, the Second World War very much pushed it towards the round case, and the round case became dominant. I would argue the perfect shape of watch for the wrist is actually a rectangular watch. It sits like no other watch. It's such a natural way of wearing a watch that you'll, after you've worn one for a while, Putting a, a round watch on feels very, very weird, actually. Anyway, um, so the Redcliffs, uh, they, they were what we restarted with. Um, and then the Brunswick came out a year after. And the Brunswick then very much sort of took over and, and changed the direction of the company. So, no, the, the, the Garrick was our second round watch in, in modern history. Um, and so it's a very strange thing that a lot of people, when they think of fears, quite rightly, think of shaped watches um because you know we're very happy to to explore and play in that area um however no i mean our, our history not only in the past but also in the recent past has very much been about round watches as well it's just i decided rather than doing the clever commercial thing of like focusing our main product lines on the most popular watch shape that's 90 percent of the watch industry and market I decided to focus on that, like, you know, 0.1% that is the cushion case. But, you know, hey, when you're, when you're running your own company, you get to make decisions like that and go, actually, I've got to love what we make. 
Yeah, and I think we all love the result of that decision as well. It was a really good choice because there should be more options and uh, having a cushion-shaped case and rectangular cases in your collection is a great thing for watch collectors worldwide. Talking of watch collectors worldwide, we had another question come in via the network and it was regarding your retail network. Now, you do have some retailers, so for people looking to try on Fierce Watches themselves, they can find them in Scotland at James Porter & Son. You can visit the Fierce showroom in Bristol. You can go to CW Sellers in Ashbourne, near my hometown. Or you can pop over to North America and talk to our friends at Collective. We love Asher and Gabe, good guys. And Topper, Rob and Russ in Birmingham. You have someone in Australia also, but notably, there's no one in the EU. So what's going on there? Some of our most ardent listeners are based in Europe and they would love to see Fears. And what would you say to them about that? It's it's a very interesting thing actually because the first the first few years of running fears I it wasn't that I I didn't want retailers but I was like the temptation is when you start a company and this is you know this is my first company right the temptation is to do everything oh we need to do this we need to do that you know and I was like no no I've got to do this in baby steps and I was adamant that the first five years, the focus was going to be to slowly grow the brand in the UK. And for the first few of those years, focusing just on selling direct, because that way I'd get direct feedback from the owners, what they liked, what they didn't like. You know, we could build up a reputation for, for outstanding customer service. Now, the way things actually work are very different to how you plan it in a business plan. And business started going much better and quicker than I was expecting. And within the first two years, America became, I think at one point, nearly 80% of our entire business was, was America. Um, and I mean, even today, America is over 50% of, of, of the company. Um, so very, you know, until I think it was a year and a bit ago, we'd never done any marketing in America. Everything was still focused on, on the UK and growing the UK. However, Things, you know, as I say, go uh, go beyond your control, which is why, you know, we're now represented not only in one place, but two places in North America. We're represented by one and soon to be a second place in Australia. We also are represented by Perpetual Gallery in Dubai, um, and they they manage us in, in the Middle East. Um, so it is very strange to go, well, why are we not in Europe? Well, these these are cases where these are different not just countries, but but individuals in countries running businesses who have come and said, look, we, ha there we have a market for fears in Australia, Dubai, America. We would like to represent you. We'd like, you know, to, to, to stock you. Now, that's one side. The other side is a little thing called Brexit. So we used to sell directly quite a lot of watches into, well, we were in the EU, so we sold them within the EU. Uh, that changed and that changed quite rapidly after the official uh, leaving of, of the EU. And since then, I mean, I think right now, it's, pro it's probably not even 1% of the business is selling watches into the EU, um, which is absolutely shocking. But I think, I think there's two things with that. One is um, it's understandable with the taxes, which is where retail really helps because people would much rather walk into a store buy a watch they've got to pay local taxes but the watch is landed right you know it's already been customed cleared and they can just take it 
Um, I think one of the other things that, you know, if I'm if I'm being very honest with myself, that has hindered us is we don't, as a company, speak any other language than English, and our website is all always been in English. All our marketing is in English. Now, you know, uh, as Alon will will very quickly correct me and say, oh, yeah, but like a lot of people across Western Europe and Central Europe, yeah, most people will speak English, and that's fine. But we've also never therefore done any sort of marketing in local local markets. This is something we're actually planning to change um, next year. Next year's focus is Europe because there's also other things. You know, we, we've grown our, we call them fears authorized stockists. And we've, we've grown our, our small but very, very loyal and dedicated network very slowly. And these are people who share, you know, my dreams and share what, what I'm trying to do with fears. You know, I've never wanted to just go into a, into a retailer who just stocks us and leaves us there. Like, you you know, it's got to be part of the story. Um, but also, you know, if you go back two years ago, Fears was two full-timers and a part-timer. We're now nine people. And in fact, in the last few months, we've now taken on a new member of our team whose focus is purely on the Fears authorized stockers. And so for him, he's like, right, now we can actually start looking and exploring new countries, new opportunities. Because you know we we're certainly getting the requests from different different retailers around around the world and especially in Europe, but up until now we've just not you know when you're a small company you you just don't have the capacity to do it all right, and also production wise you know last year we we made less than five hundred watches this year we'll be just under a thousand next year we'll be about fifteen hundred but we I don't want to have you know fifty retailers around the world, and every single one of them is out of stock perpetually. And everything's on back order. That's that's not a working relationship, you know. You can you can expect that if you're FP Jean, but you can't expect that when you're fears. Like I, I, so we've had to change a lot of the structure in the business to now be in a position where basically, from the fourth quarter of this year, we're actively looking to grow our retailers around the world. So I mean, that's not a very sexy, exciting part of the podcast. Most people will be like, oh, great. I really want to learn about the trials and tribulations of running a watch company. But I think it's like a lot of people will assume that the reason we've done everything is for some very profound reason. And often it's just a simple case of we don't have the capacity or the resource to do it. And sadly, we therefore have to turn it down. But as the business grows, my my thing of running this business is to ensure that you know, we are now able to accept opportunities. So I know that's very dull and boring, but hopefully that uh, that answers the uh, the question in a very kind of open, honest way. You know, there, 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 there's no, there's no, nothing more exciting or interesting other than the fact of just we we haven't been at a, a at a point where we could do it. I don't think it's boring at all. And maybe if it is, that's what people come to the real time show for: honest and transparent answers. And I don't know. I don't think they're bored to tears by uh, by these kind of things. In the slightest, I think it's fantastic that you're so candid about it. And if you do ever need any support in Europe, you've got Alon in the Netherlands, you've got me in Germany, you know, we'd love to tell the story and be part of it in any way we can. And it's a real pleasure for us to welcome you onto the Real Time Show. And thank you for taking an hour of your time to chat to us. It's flown by. I can't believe that we've done a whole show already. Um, once again, as I always say to you, I feel like I was listening to a podcast rather than <laughs> taking part. And it's just so compelling to hear your story and, you know, learn about your background and learn more about you. 
as a man in charge of this incredible legacy. So we're going to wrap it up there. Anyone listening to this show that has questions for Nicholas that we didn't manage to get to, please do send them to us. You can find us on Instagram. I'm there at Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alon is on Instagram at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can contact us via email, either Rob or Alon at therealtime.show or via the contact form on the website www.therealtime.show. We'll be back next week with more questions and answers and another interview from one of Watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs>